0: If someone tells you about a really big milestone event in their life, that would be really important to put into your CRM so you can bring it up later and you can find out more and build that genuine relationship with people to so show that you're listening and then that you are you know, responding to that and you're growing their interest in your organization.
1: From Virtuous, I'm Noah Barnett, and this is the Responsive Fundraising Podcast, a show where we talk with fundraising leaders and thinkers to uncover how today's top nonprofits craft remarkable donor experiences and build lasting relationships at scale. On this episode, I'm joined by Jill Bruner and Missy Gale, both consultants at M Gale and Associates. And during this episode, we actually dive into the challenges that nonprofit leaders face during this unprecedented time, the importance of listening and how that can help differentiate between how you navigate the current crisis and sustain your giving versus those that will fall flat and actually struggle through this time. And then we also talk about the importance of making the pivot and being able to adjust your strategies to the new reality that we have, and put a magnifying glass to the systems that you're using to enable that strategy to connect your supporters to your story. Jill and Missy are a wealth of knowledge, so let's dive in. Missy and Jill, I'm so grateful to have you here because one of the things about our current environment that's quite challenging for nonprofit leaders to navigate is there's so many things to address and deal with. Like the environment we fundraise in today is quite complicated and complex. And I know you all work alongside a lot of clients and leaders and help them really consider some of these questions. And so I'm grateful to have you here to help us navigate this. But before we get into that, what I'm curious about, because I think it's going to help set up the context of the conversation, is what even got you all to this point? Like, what sparked your journey to even desire to come along nonprofit leaders? And Missy, I know you've been doing this for so long, so I'll kick it over to you.
2: Thank you, Noah and Jill. Glad to be on with you today. Um, yes, uh, you know, I started my journey in public relations and marketing Um, In the DFW area, had the opportunity to work in the PR um, in the PR arena during two airline disasters here, and as well as um, crisis management as AIDS and universal precautions came around in the healthcare industry, and then wound uh, through working with many different nonprofit organizations to eventually starting M Galen Associates after working with a national. Uh, consulting firm. And, and really my interest and in, in the evolution, if you will, of the fundraising industry kind of go together, um, starting out with you know, fundraising really was put your arm around somebody uh, through your church or your school uh, 40, 50 years ago and evolves today to be a pretty complex, as you mentioned, um, industry where we can use the tools of the trade both objectively and subjectively to raise funds. So lots of different uh, ways that we all enter this field. And I've had the opportunity now to work with social service organizations, schools, uh, many environmental organizations, and arts and cultural.
1: Yeah, and that's excellent. I think uh, you mentioned those two airline disasters, and I'm sure that's at least provided you some level of exposure to, to uncertain times. So I definitely want to dig into that. But prior, Mm -hmm. Jill, I know you work alongside Missy um, at MGEL and Associates. And so I'm curious, what got you to this point? Like, how did you step into the space of serving alongside nonprofit leaders? So um,
0: that's a great question, Noah. When I started um, nonprofits was when I was uh, at the University of North Dakota, and I began working at the public radio station. And, uh, you know, spinning the, uh, spinning the vinyl and also doing uh, public radio fund drives on air and understanding why it was so important to raise those dollars and why it was so important to ask the community that was benefiting from our work to come alongside of us and be our partners and making sure that we, you know, we're entertaining them, but also informing them, you know, in, at really critical times. And so over the years, I had spent quite a bit of time in arts and education and there was real practicality and, hey, Jill, if you wanna start this program, you need to raise the funds to get it done. And so for me, that meant listening to stakeholders, finding out what programs were needed, whether it was, you know, museum funding or museum education, you know, and and running work in the galleries and bringing in schools and after school clubs, or if I was out in the community, working in community centers, you know, actually going into uh, the areas where people gathered and finding out what their needs were, and then going back to the funders and saying, this is what our community is asking for, let's build this together, and so, over time, it really just pushed me to continually want to work with a purpose. And so that has kept me in the nonprofit space for the past 25 years. Um, and over time, as Missy talked about, you know, that relationship building has been so critical. Um, I also, um, am pretty analytical and for me, it's about the data. And so, um, I love marrying the two and seeing, you know, growth over time, but then also being able to respond in real time if donors aren't, you know, if the messaging you're putting out there isn't resonating with the donor. And so Missy had talked about the airline um, crises and some of the other crises she's worked through. And and I can remember trying to get ahead of the economic crisis in uh, 2006, 7, 8, and 9, and what donor, you know, what our donor numbers looked like at that time. I was in higher education, and we were trying to stay ahead of, oh, well, our donors are still giving, so it hasn't quite affected them yet, or they're they're not scared yet, so let's keep working. And then all of a sudden, sitting in the middle of that, and saying, wow, our donors can't give; they've lost their jobs, they've lost their homes, you know, their lives are in crisis. What can we do? What what messaging can we provide? So that we don't have all the answers, but we can give them hope so that they stay connected to us. And when they feel ready to give again, after they've taken care of themselves and their families, they can go back to giving to us in a way that's even more meaningful than it was before. And that was a lot of scholarship fundraising. And they would say, the alumni would say, I I never could have attended this college had I not received a scholarship. And now I'm able to give back. And I'm really proud of that. And so it was constantly asking and listening to what they were saying and then responding to that in a really thoughtful way.
1: Yeah, and I think you mentioned a few things there that I definitely want to unpack and and the first and foremost is this idea that like organizations can prepare. And in some ways we're in the midst of kind of our current 2020 season of crisis and complexity. And so that preparation is very obvious when organizations had prepared versus those that are not. I was having a conversation with uh, two other colleagues and we talked about this idea that there's, what we're observing is that there was nonprofits caught flat-footed in this current moment and there were others that were prepared and had a plan of action when moments of crisis happen and they're actually seeing, actually being able to flourish. So it's kind of this contrast between being caught flat-footed or being able to flourish in the midst of crisis. How are you seeing organizations navigating this current moment as far as um, being able to be successfully, or to successfully pivot amidst this and what might've prepared them to do that well? Missy, do you wanna comment on this?
2: Sure. Um, one of the first things we did when uh, the pandemic occurred and we were all ask, asked to you know, shelter in place in our homes across the nation. Um, as a company, we decided to offer any nonprofit in the Dallas-Fort Worth area where where we reside um, that would like to come on and visit with any of our 12 consultants for a 30-minute complimentary consultation. And and we did that both to be open uh, to the community and serve, but also to listen to see what the immediate needs and emerging needs were. And so to your point, um, we had uh, over 36 organizations contact us in the first 10 days, and then subsequently have we've remained open to, to providing these kinds of calls and continue to do them. But in that first wave, in the first couple of weeks, um, there was definitely a stratification of the kinds of organizations we heard from. Uh, we heard from universities all the way to very, very small social, social service agency nonprofits. And in general, um, those that were smaller we're feeling a little bit more flat-footed in, in general. You know, we there's obviously some small organizations are very well-prepared. Well but typically, it's because they're, um, they're, when it comes to their fundraising programs, they, they don't necessarily have all of the tools in the toolbox up and running and ready to go, right? So the database maybe isn't really ready to go um, the staffing now is remote and in and, and many cases didn't even have the ability to send staff home with a laptop um, and then connect back into a base um, and things like that. So uh, all the way up to the more complex issues with, with, as such as, you know, we're in a major gift campaign right now or a major gift endowment process and we're not sure when it will be appropriate to ask again, what, what do we do now? Um, so you're right. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of, it was all over the map and will continue to be just as any businesses. And so, so one of the things I, I keep thinking about myself during this process, even with my own small business, we have to continue to plan and create and do while we're planning, creating and doing. Right. It's just you, in order to survive and keep your own missions advancing, um, you've got to take care of the basic things first, which are your clients and those you serve and your own staff. And um, then you've got to also be speaking and listening uh, to your uh, revenue uh, sources, which in fundraising is your donors.
1: And and I think that brings up an interesting point because you talk about this idea of going back to the basics and first you talk about, you know, obviously, the, those you serve, which nonprofits have a variety of stakeholders they serve, then you talk about people, and then you talk about donors. However, one thing I've noticed as I've reflected on kind of the responses that some nonprofits have taken is that those latter two have been divested in. And what I mean by this is I've seen a lot of nonprofits having to lay staff off, specifically development staff, and thus okay. actually... Either opting out from fundraising at the moment while they try to figure out what's going on or what's appropriate or how they should respond, um, or they just don't actually have the staff now to engage with their donors in the way that we would advise or maybe hope for. And and, and I'm bringing that up because I'm curious how you're advising organizations to balance that idea of the people they're serving, the people that do the serving, which are their staff and then obviously their donors, like how, how should organizations be thinking about balancing those three really essential parts of being able to do the work that they're doing?
2: Well, and, and Jill, I'd love you to comment on this too, but I, I think one of the things that we have to remember when we're working with nonprofit organizations is that they, they have, typically they have an executive director or CEO who manages the organization as a whole, Right and then they'll have a fundraiser and then they have program people right at the top of their staff pyramid. But they have another really important link and that is the board of directors that approves and authorizes um, the the organization to do its work. Um, And so what I witnessed and continue to witness in this pandemic um, for the first time, different than other crises that I've been involved in and served, is that the remote nature of a volunteer board of directors is a little difficult to work through right now. And so, um, you know, would you lay off your sales team when you need to sell? Typically not. In a for-profit organization, that would, be a, that would be a no-brainer. In a nonprofit organization, there's this, oh, what is essential staff? And this thought that essential staff, because many, especially in the social service arena, Many organizations believe that essential is only those who serve the clients, right? Um, So getting the consensus around the board and the executive team and the leadership team to move forward in this remote environment has been difficult. Because remember, your volunteer boards are also dealing with the pandemic in their own businesses and their own families. So I think think that's made it tougher, uh, right, at this very moment. Um, and that's why we're seeing some of some of the wrong things done, like laying off people that help generate revenue.
0: Yeah, and I think that what Missy said. I've seen glaringly not good examples and glaringly great examples of small organizations being nimble enough to say we can't have our board meeting in two weeks. We can't meet together in person. Can you make these calls instead? And you know, some don't some. Uh, boards of directors, maybe they've never done that before, but they also know that it's really important to show their role as a board and as leaders. And they also want to do something with purpose and sitting at home, watching the news may not give a lot of people purpose. In fact, it may make them feel really helpless. And so, um, I know I've coached several clients on who on your board or who on your staff would be great calling donors, you know, program staff, they are great talking to donors. And as a fundraiser, yes, that can make me a little nervous. But also they're the people that are out there on the front lines. They get to tell those stories of what's happening at the hospice house or what is happening in the classroom or you know what are the struggles of students right now and how can we help them, um, whether you know it's someone with a rare, you know, with some form of a rare disease. Or it's someone with a learning disability, and yet they still need, you know, to have their medication. They still need to receive their services. They still, you know, need to work through whatever is put in front of them. And so I think engaging board and staff um, now, I'm hoping, will be the new reality of everybody here needs to ensure the financial health of the nonprofit And everybody here is a fundraiser. And when I used to work in a hospice house, you know, I came together closely with the nurses because they would say, oh, you want to help? Go talk to Jill. And I said, you know, let me give you, um, let me sit down with you, find out what your needs are. And then if maybe we can work together on a training of what language you can say to these families that really want to help. Um, and come together and have those conversations and, and solve those needs together so that they feel empowered that they're not only the nursing staff, they're also part of the fundraising team. And I think that's that's really important um, for everybody at the organization to see the value of fundraising and how fundraising isn't actually hard or scary.
1: And what I think we're discussing and almost the current uh, moment of crisis and kind of shifts and complexity is revealing is the importance of bold and courageous leadership within nonprofits and the ability to really evaluate or maybe the measurements of how you see success and understand the business and the mechanics of how you're actually able to operate as two essential things. And I I don't believe we stress that enough outside of moments when those two things are stretched, where leadership really is the differentiator between an organization being able to pivot well and maintain their staff morale and build momentum, and also their understanding of the funding structures where they can say, hey, these are the gaps, these are the things we're going to pivot and move forward. Those two things in understanding the business and bold leadership are crucial. And I know you all at McGill uh, and Associates work alongside nonprofit leaders to advise them on certain things along these lines. So I'm curious how you're advising the leaders you're working with or maybe recommendations you would give to others as they continue to navigate the current crisis, but even as we emerge from this moment, how should, what should they be focused on and where should they be investing their time?
2: In in crisis situations, and it, you know, we, we talk about, do you have a crisis communication plan? Do you have a crisis operating plan and, and things like that? And, and let's face it, most uh, nonprofits don't have to use those that often. So those that have them in place are typically, and I came out of healthcare, that's why I worked for the first 15 years of my career. In hospitals, you have a crisis plan because you have to. Um, in airlines, you have a crisis communications plan because you have to. And, and depending on the type of, of um, service you provide, you may or may not exercise those plans very often. So it's one of the things um, I ask and, and I suggest to the, the CEOs that I'm talking with is simply activating some type of leadership chain. You, and so it's you you can't you can't write the crisis communi the communications plan during the crisis. It's too late, right? <laughs> you're already in it. So so activate a chain of command and strategize uh, from the from the top down. Um, so you take you're you're in the crisis and. What is actually happening now? Are we serving more people? Are we seeing fewer people? Are we having to close our doors? Our art museums, doors are closed. They're not serving their their clients or their, their customers need to see art. So they have to look at a different way to do it. So what's actually happening? How is it affecting your organization? And who should help during this period of time and then deploy that down the chain? And that means that I mean, the, lead, the top leadership of the organization has to really be able to gather up pretty quickly and do a situation analysis on where they are, get buy-in from the board, deploy the, the, whatever the stopgap needs to be, and then start planning for the, whatever the next wave is going to be, three to four months down the road. So we had our initial um, response and reaction. and most of it when when a crisis hits, it's response and reaction. and how did we do with that? And then it's a, a quarter later, it's okay, what's happening now? What do we anticipate is going to happen in the next uh, three to four months? And how do we prepare for that and who does it? So um, you have you have to, I think in in the strategy, you have to you have to de- depend on the top leaders of the organization to set the strategy. And explain and tell others uh, how to deploy that strategy. it is a chain of command thing when you're in a crisis it's uh, consensus building comes later when you gather data and you figure out okay um, here's, here's what we learned so now let's build consensus around the next plan
0: I think what Missy was talking about with leadership is so is so important you know re, you know during this crisis refining what the organization is doing and responding to that need. And then being really bold, like you said, Noah, as a leader, you know, have that courage, you know, have that perseverance, be grateful of who's making your work possible. But I also think there is a little bit of vulnerability in that leadership to say, I don't have all the answers. This is our plan. What do you think of this plan? These are our core values and beliefs. This is why we exist today. And I think really refining that will drive your donors even closer to you because you're you're aligning with their passions and their purposes. Mm -hmm. And I talk talk to nonprofits about what are your pathways in for donors? And I remember um, a leader of the United Way in central Minnesota, where I used to live, said, I never thought of it that way. And I said, yeah, I love giving visuals because that really breaks it down for you as the leader of the organization, for your staff but also for your donors. What do you care about? Great, that's a pathway in. We provide that service. We want you to help us. What do you think of that need in the community and how can we work together? And so I think that leadership is so important and through this crisis, we've really seen amazing people step up and be leaders that we didn't, weren't even aware of maybe before. I think those people that got you know froze or, or went silent, you know, those people are not being thought about and the donors aren't, aren't looking at them anymore. They're looking at people that they can trust and, uh, and, and who they're going to follow and who they're going to support and who they're going to give feedback to. Cause you, you know, if you speak, you want to be heard. And that listening is really important because that leader isn't saying, I have all the answers. I'm actually looking for input from you.
1: And kind of what I'm hearing is that uh, organizations that do this well really ask kind of two questions. And Missy, I think you said it better, but just in summary, is that like this idea of like what what is real? I've heard this like frame this way, like what is actually going on? What is real? And that really does take some like understanding of your data. Like how is this going to affect your business? Because there's a lot of like narratives and socialization like, oh, this is going to, you know, charities are going to go out of business. We're shutting down. The economy is closing and you're having a lot of these inputs come in. And this question about what is real, I've seen leaders use to be able to uh, cut through the nuances that aren't relevant to their current situation. And then there's a second question asking, like, what now? And I think that helps drive that short-term action plan, as you mentioned, Missy, like this idea of being able to move forward and through and then reevaluate and move forward and through and reevaluate. And so both those things are extremely Essential and Jill, you mentioned this idea of like being able to bring this visually to life, and so I'm curious how you've seen nonprofits pivot well and how others maybe have have missed an opportunity to pivot and are feeling the repercussions to that. Can you give some coloring to that maybe not without listening to organizations but kind of talking about examples of how this showed up well in the environment versus maybe where there was some fumble
0: yeah, I think um, yeah, I can think of one organization that um, had to change completely how they operated and they ended up up providing basically four times as much service as they previously had provided. I think what they did well is they called upon some board members to reach out to donors and ask them to give, and they were able to cover three months of their increased operations because of that. Um, I became a donor of that organization I never had before and I knew them very well and I'm very close to them and the, uh, the response I received from my online donation were two canned email messages. Mm -hmm. And that was shocking to me because I know the organization well and I know the depth of their values and their purpose in the community. So I was a little shocked that they hadn't changed those automated responses. But as Missy said, they're small and they're doing the best they can, which is what I know. And so me personally being so close to them, I'm not personalizing it, thinking I'm never gonna give to them again. But I thought, how is this going to impact your fundraising going forward if this is the thanks people are getting? They received the message, we need you know, four times as much support as ever before, but then that was the response. So I think that was an, that's an example of um, something that wasn't done well. Um, I can think of an organization that uh, provides support um, in Africa and India, and they were saying, gosh, are we asking too much? And then when they started telling me the stories of how COVID was impacting the people they serve in Uganda and how people were locked in their homes and would be shot if they left their homes because of the curfew. And they had to sneak to their neighbor's house to get food. And they said, I'm not sure what we should do. And I said, these stories are so impactful. Please share these stories. And they've been raising amazing funds to provide um, all the needs in Uganda just by telling the simple stories and and having other people that work for them in Uganda get on a video and they could just feed that through their social media. And it's very emotional. And you, you feel bad living in your home and you can't leave and you can't play with your friends. And then you see people in Uganda who can't leave their home to even get food and you can find some money to help them. And so I think they did a really good job of of having their message resonate with donors.
1: Absolutely. And I think there's tons of those examples where organizations that weren't necessarily on the front lines still were able to contextualize the message to the cause. Because what we've always said is that if your cause was important, the work you did was important pre-COVID, it's important post-COVID and sometimes more so than ever. And you can't lose sight of that and also... Distance yourself from the donors that also care about that work like your job is to connect your supporters to the story or the impact the mission the cause and making sure that you're on the front lines of that regardless of the current circumstances is still extremely important while balancing empathy and understanding for the current moment or the current dialogue because there's always going to be something and if you just opt out I think that you're missing an opportunity and really your responsibility to steward those donors to your cause as, as well as you should be?
2: Well, if we, if we kind of go back to some of the fundamental things about, uh, about the, the psychology, if you will, of giving, um, you know, people who are givers are givers, whether they are wealthy or poor. Um, they, it is in their DNA to help others by giving of their time, talent, and treasure, right? And, and those that have that inclination will have that no matter where they are. In life. Um, the, the second piece of that is that um, people, uh, donors respond to causes and things that they feel need their support. And so they have to be driven to feel a need to act, right? And so it's not really ever. Even in outside of a crisis, it's not the role of, a, of the nonprofit organization to beg for funds. I mean, we're always saying, don't beg for funds. Um, but it's our role to offer the opportunity for people to support the cause. And so that doesn't change. And, and sensitivity, yes, around not over asking. But if you're always offering opportunity, people will opt in when they want to opt in. Um, so you know, it's a what's different. I think to right now because of COVID and because we all had to go remote and online, and while the the industry was already there, thank goodness, um, <clears throat> not all the charities were there yet, and so many charities were still using uh, paper, and and of course we we love face to face interaction and we'll continue to do that, and some. Um, remote and internet uh, based asking or social uh, based asking there was a lot in in of uh, people doing that or organizations doing that, but now there 's a lot more <laughs> and so the feeling of the uh, you know i 've heard a lot of people say they're having they 're feeling exhausted from this um, because it 's there all the time, whether it be from fundraising or any other type of of uh, advertisement coming toward you right and so it's it's being there to filter through the interest level of those that you're seeking to be interested in you I don't know that's that's to me the the big the big tough one here I think staying in the game is a given um, but how well you stay in the game the timing of the game is going to be different Um, and, and then finally one other thing that that is weighing on, on my mind, because we do a lot of work in major gifts, which is primarily done face to face. Um, you know, the future of major gift fundraising is going to change a little bit, uh, with our inability to be, um, in close proximity to one another and, um, driving new relationships from being, uh, relationships that are done through through social and internet communications to a personal relationship that's how we in relationship management we always move from systematic communication to individual connection and humans like to be individually connected and then that's when major giving occurs Um, and so how that's going to get done how you're going to bring new major gift givers into the fold I think is going to be a big question Um, I know how we can steward those we already have but how we're going to move people up and into a deep relationship is going to be different.
0: Yeah I think I think Missy is touching on something that um, I think a lot about too is you see annual giving you know or general ops and then you see major giving and there's always this huge space in between and who are the donors that are sitting in there and If they haven't provided some signal that you think, oh, oh, a major gift officer has to go spend time with them, then they're just left in the churn with, you know, maybe really low level donors that don't have great retention rates. And so um, I advocate for having, and this also not only ties into retention and growing donor giving, it also ties into staff retention. And who can you pluck from annual giving that can start getting on the phone, not even out face to face, but just getting on the phone and having deep and meaningful conversations with donors and learning more about them and finding out why they ever engaged with you in the first place. Are they an activist for your organization? Did someone they love suffer from an illness that your organization is working to cure? You know, where is that loop and where where did that all come together and then how to grow based on that, what they care most about. And I think in doing so, then we're training incoming major gift officers. We're also showing the donors, you know, maybe not $25,000, maybe just 1000 And I shouldn't say just because that's a lot of money for a lot of people. But at that level, those people care a lot more. And then that may help them decide, gosh, can I afford to give more? What does that look like for me? I've never thought of myself as a high level donor, but I really believe in the impact of this organization and their stories really matter to me. And that's how you can grow. I believe that giving into what we need. And I think that hopefully will change the face of fundraising because when we're all better fundraisers, I think we'll grow philanthropy.
1: We've talked about this a lot, Jill, is that like that's where the alignment is, right? Like there's an opportunity in this moment to rethink even break down some of the systems that we've leveraged to build deeper donor relationships, because many of those have been unbended. And I think, Missy, you talk about this idea that like, even in the midst of the pivot, there's now increased competition. And we've talked about this a lot here at Virtuous, that attention is actually the most valuable currency today. And mm-hmm. you earn that through relevance, and you right. steward that through relevance and personal connection. And so it kind of brings me to my next question is like, as we're moving from this initial response phase and map our fundraising path kind of beyond survival or opportunity giving, what should fundraisers and specifically fundraising leaders be focused on? You know, what strategy should they be deploying? Because we had had a conversation about readiness. We had a conversation about response, but now it's like we're in like the resilience building stage in the recovery phases. And I'm curious how you're advising people As we emerge from the moment of crisis?
2: One of the things for the last at least 10 years, we have had solid technology in place to manage uh, uh, donor donor, uh, relations in any nonprofit organization. And and with the advent of the cloud, um, we can almost any organization, all organizations, in my opinion, if you are an organization, you should have a database that works. Um, so at the end of the day, I mean, it, if you haven't gotten into technology and not just purchase your technology, but train up and feed your technology so that it works for you, you're not going to survive anymore. <laughs> I mean, the Excel spreadsheet won't do it. <laughs> um, and if we haven't learned that from this crisis, then we're not going to learn it. So, so that, I mean, that's a, that to me is base one. And we we work with dozens and dozens of nonprofit organizations that still today, we will go in to do an assessment in preparation for a major project and find that we're sidebarred on Excel spreadsheets. And it, it, it hamstrings. And when you really go in and dive into why, it's typically because there is not investment in personnel to keep and feed the database. So, so, you know, advice number one is get your technology, learn how to work it and have the staff in place to manage it um, and then train everybody else up on how to, how to use the data that comes out. mean, so that, that's kind of base one. And, and that is a huge differenti- differentiator between for-profit and nonprofit organizations. For-profit organizations typically invest in their technology first. Nonprofit organizations tend to invest in their people and their services first. Um, so yeah. that's a, that's one thing. And then on the other, and then the other side is the the, the the big advice as Jill was just saying earlier, is you probably have a lot in in the things you've already been doing. There's so much opportunity for your staff, your program officers, your major gift officers, your board to just grab up some information and and with some messaging begin to start cultivating and asking.
1: I'm grateful for your emphasis on technology first and not just technology as a whole, but really considering the other elements of that. Like we talk a lot about that, you know, organizations have systems and we're not talking about technology or like ones and zeros and hardware and software. When we say systems, but we talk about how systems are what you use to connect your supporters to your story. And that Mm -hmm. system is actually made up of platforms, which Mm -hmm. are technology like software, like virtuous, you know, here, we're biased on that, (laughs) but also people in process. Mm -hmm. And the people in the process side is actually what makes the platform valuable and the system actually work. And what we find is not necessarily that there's not an investment in like, Oh, we should have technology. But it's that latter part of your, 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 your recommendations where it's like there's not the people and there's not the processes to make sure that we're actually leveraging the platform to bridge the gap between those supporters and stories. So I appreciate that kind of emphasis because that's something we see a lot, even with our prospects. Like we talk to them about that a lot because we might be like, you might not be ready to adopt a platform because there's a people and a process element to this that okay. we need to get in order first before right. we actually, you know, install the platform. Sure. Right.
0: I think that um, when Missy talked about that, I was thinking as she, after she talked about technology, you know, I kept thinking communication and your communication isn't going to be strong enough if you're not reinforcing your core values and you're not having consistent messaging. But the other piece is what are you putting in your CRM? What, What have you trained your staff and your board and your stakeholders to know as really useful information? Like what's valuable that you're putting in there? and that your organization is consistently doing with a high turnover rate in fundraising professionals, people value what goes in the database differently and how that is so critical. If someone tells you about a really big milestone event in their life, that would be really important to put into your CRM so you can bring it up later and you can find out more and build that genuine relationship with people. And I think that's really critical for that communication piece to show that you're listening and then that you are you know, responding to that and you're growing their interest in your organization.
1: There's so much more we could talk about in this. And, I, and But I think the overall essence here is there's kind of the shared sense of uncertainty that's relatively rampant right now. Mm-hmm. And I want to kind of provide maybe some practical advice. And Jill, I'll, I'll start with you. On this is like, how should fundraisers wade through this time, especially as like, it's not just COVID, but there's, you know, racial injustice issues, there's complexity in the economic markets, there's global disruption, there's political disruption, there's a lot of different things going on that creates this uncertainty. So how should fundraising leaders wade through this? And likely more important, honestly, is guide and support their donors amidst this reality.
0: Um, I do believe in this time of racism and injustice, making sure that your board and your staff reflect all of the voices, the black, indigenous, and people of color. And this is something that I've been talking to organizations about for a long time, I think there was a discomfort in knowing what that looked like and how to begin that process. So I think that's really important as we talked previously about leadership. It's okay to say, I don't know, who should we bring to the table? Who isn't reflected here? What voices are not in this room that can help us be a better organization and stronger in responding to the needs of the community? If we don't look like the community at large or the community we're serving, we must be missing the mark on our programming, on who's here, and we're asking for their support, all of those things. So I think the vulnerability of leadership and the courage to stand up and say, I don't know, or this is what I think, what do you think? I think that's really important. And for staff to be able to have those re- conversations with their partners, with their donors, um, and with the community at large, I think will be really important because if someone has had a big um let's say they lost their job or the divorce or something, real big life event, a big important death in their family, maybe they're not publicly sharing that. But if you have a relationship with them, they're going to let you know that information and you'll know if it's a good time to ask for their support or not. So I don't think that changes. I don't think that goes away. That's always been important. But some of these key parts of fundraising are being highlighted now that more than ever, we need to listen to our donors and we need to have a genuine relationship with them. So less transaction and, and more transformation.
1: And Missy, from your experience, what would you add to this as we kind of just like move forward and kind of almost ha- are required to get comfortable with complexity?
2: This is a hard time. And, and I want to first validate that. Um, the pandemic was hard enough. And then on top of it, we have, a terrible, terrible uh, social unrest right now. And so, first of all, just acknowledging um, to all of us that we're all in this place together, and um, and as such, because we are we are who we are and we are where we are now for a reason, um, that we each have a responsibility to help correct and, and counterbalance um, what's occurring in the world around us, and and if we do that. I may sound very uh, Pollyanna or too optimistic, but that's where I like to sit on the, where the, where the glass is half full. Um, we will we will eventually um, turn turn this around. Um, so if we have those kinds of beliefs, then, then um, we can help one another rather than giving up or giving in. Um, I, I would just say this: I've seen this all around us right now, and I think it's I think it's really great. Um, one, sharpen your skills, learn. Uh, take some time to learn. Uh, when we're in really good times and things are rolling fat and happy, we, we don't necessarily um, take take the time to sharpen skills and learn new things. And um, it's all, you know, opportunity for that is all around us right now, and, and it, that's great. Um, use your voice to contribute. Um, basically, you know, as you're learning, share what you're learning. Um, sift through it. And bring back a relevant response to whatever organization you're involved in, or you care about, or you want to be involved in, um, and, and use that in the, use the power of the individual to help the greater community. Um, that's that part of my love for for working in the nonprofit space is the, the nonprofit organizations have at their core a desire to help others or do something uh, for the community in a greater way. And so this industry can be a leader and, and should be a leader in turning things around. So that would be my thinking on on that topic.
1: Absolutely, and Missy and Jill, I appreciate kind of your ability to articulate some of these complexities that we're dealing with and, and just being able to kind of uh, synthesize that down. I know there were four key themes, I think, that come out of this uh, conversation today. One is the importance of leadership and how essential that is in the world that we live in today, whether that's at the actual leadership level, at the board level, or even honestly at the individual level and just taking ownership as people, as a part of this programming and this community that we all live in together and just stepping up and doing that, uh, doing what you can and doing that well and leading well the second thing i think that's interesting and jill you highlighted this multiple times throughout today's present or today's conversation is that the importance of listening and i feel like listening is going to be a differentiator for organizations going forward those that can listen well and not only just listen and then you know consume but also listen and then respond is going to be essential and i know we talk a lot about here on he, I talk a lot about that here on the Responsive Fundraising Podcast. The third thing, Missy, which you kind of brought up again, is this idea of learning. Like the faster and the ability and capability we have to learn as an organization is going to be essential for going forward because things are changing and we need to be able to sharpen our skills, as you mentioned. And the last thing I know we didn't highlight specifically, but I think there's an underlying theme amidst uncertainty and complexity that kind of comes out of nowhere or is long-lasting is this importance of focusing on the long-term. Jill, in the intro, you kind of talked about this idea of we need to be relating with our donors and our programs and thinking well beyond the current moment and maybe the current capacity and our own needs, but the fact that we're building relationships for the long-term. We're deepening donor relationships and building those lasting moments with our donors so that collectively we can serve the causes that we each uh, care about and are contributing to Uh, in our world today. So I'm so grateful for your leadership on this, Jill and Missy. And thank you as you continue to lead others um, as we navigate this world. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Noah. I'm grateful for your time.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Responsive Fundraising Podcast by Virtuous. Each episode we've designed to really give you the insights into the philosophy, process, and playbook of leading nonprofits so that you can grow giving and build deeper relationships with the people who matter most, your donors. And if you want to dig further into Responsive Fundraising, we've actually put together an exclusive content pack just for listeners of this podcast. If you go to virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, that's virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, you can download a content kit that includes the Responsive Fundraising Blueprint, which outlines all of the strategies that are involved in implementing responsive fundraising. You'll also get the responsive fundraising playbook, which includes 20 plus plays, which are basically strategies that you can implement today at your nonprofit to become more responsive and ultimately raise retention and increase giving. We'll also throw in a bunch of other resources and content that is gonna be helpful for you as you think about how you're applying responsive fundraising at your nonprofit and it's completely free. You can grab that at virtuouscrm.com slash podcast.